Most of us have a June Didion origin story. The article or book or photograph or quote that first made us want to know more about this quiet oracle. Maybe you saw a Julian Wasser photograph of an unsmiling woman in a full-length long-sleeved dress with her back against her Corvette Stingray and her splayed right hand clutching a cigarette, and you said to yourself, she's a writer? I want to be a writer. Maybe you were a disaffected youth following a beatnik dream on the road to San Francisco in 1979 when your mom sent you the 1968 collection Slouching Towards Bethlehem and advised you to read the titular article in which Didion exposes the Haight-Ashbury hippie trip. This is writer David L. Ulan's origin story, and he didn't stop at that essay. He kept reading until he became the editor of the Library of America Anthologies of Joan Didion's writing. Maybe you just read the famous first line from her book, The White Album. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Nodded and sharpened your pencil. That quote is one of the most famous of Didion's many literary jewels and the most subject to interpretation. On one hand, it's an invitation. By writing in the first person plural, we, she includes and empowers the reader. We are all storytellers, she says, and we all have the existential human right, as basic as food, water, and shelter, to tell our stories. Didion's embrace of her readers, coupled with her openness about herself, is an act of radical generosity. She told her story to encourage us to tell ours. But the essay, like so much of Didion's writing, is also an indictment of narrative's ability to limit and distort reality, and Joan includes herself in this indictment. She empowers us, and she warns us. Stories can be lies. We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria which is our actual experience. She says in the White Album, Narrative was her expertise and her enemy. We live in an age of reckonings over who gets to tell stories and how and why. Didion faced this abyss as a young woman beginning her career and her family, and her transparency about this dissolution was her, and our, saving grace. I've had to struggle all my life against my own apprehensions, my own false ideas, my own distorted perceptions, she said in a commencement address at the University of California, Riverside, in 1975. I've had to work very hard make myself unhappy, give up ideas that made me comfortable, trying to apprehend social reality. I've spent my entire adult life, it seems to me, in a state of profound culture shock. I wish I were unique in this, but I'm not. Didion expressed many of her foundational concepts first in speeches like these, mostly at universities, to younger audiences, this is part of what has made her legacy so transformative for multiple generations. She was literally speaking to us, passing on what she had learned. It takes an act of will to live in the world, which is what I'm talking about today, she said at Riverside. By living in the world, I mean really trying to see it, look at it, trying to make connections. And that's not easy. It takes work. You have to keep stripping yourself down, examining everything you see, getting rid of whatever is blinding you. Then she offered this advice, throw yourself into the convulsion of the world. 
Beginning in the 1960s with her journalism and first novel, Joan Didion reshaped the geography of American literature by redirecting readers' attention away from the East and toward the way the sun set over the Pacific Ocean. There were other great California writers before, during, and after her, of course, but there was something about the way this woman documented the real lives of the West that was new, riveting, and transformational. She wrote about the world she knew, the rivers, the freeways, the mountains, the movie stars, the ocean, the orchids. And she wrote about it with such an eye for detail and an ear for music, and with such a mix of appreciation and skepticism that she put us in her places. In her 87 years, Joan Didion wrote five novels, hundreds of articles, many of which were collected in books, several movies, and a play. She was a much-photographed literary celebrity and a fashion icon. Her death on December 23, 2021, launched a tsunami of tributes from other writers, but also from actors, musicians, filmmakers, artists, politicians, and her legion of fans. Even those who criticize her acknowledge her craft and legacy. Didion's writing was often extremely personal. She confessed her madness, her grief, her guilt, her love, her failures. And yet there is something of the cipher about her. She was extremely reticent in person and kept much of her life private. Her writings were windows into her world, but she kept the doors locked. When she died, it felt like she took the keys with her. After Joan Didion passed, I threw myself into the convulsion of her world. It was a place I thought I knew, but I had so much to learn. Mine is one of the more common Didion origin stories. In college, I read Some Dreamers of the Golden Dream, Joan Didion's 1966 article about a murder in San Bernardino. I was taking one of the two journalism courses my school offered, and our textbook was the anthology The New Journalism, edited by Tom Wolfe. I was not generally interested in crime stories, but Dreamers was no ordinary whodunit. Didion's subject was not homicide. Her subject was the Inland Empire, the rather grandiose name for the exurban area east of Los Angeles. The mystery Didion was trying to solve was not whether Lucille Miller killed her husband, setting their VW bug on fire with Gordon Cork Miller inside. That was evident, her story made clear. The question that puzzled the writer was much bigger than that of one marriage gone wrong. Where had the dream gone wrong? The golden dream, the California dream, the American dream. The dream, and its bad turn, was the theme of much of Joan Didion's work. She may have been the golden girl of the Golden State who lived the literary golden dream, but she saw the darkness and danger of the mines. This is a story about love and death in the Golden Land, and begins with the country, reads the first sentence of Some Dreamers. It's not a conventional news lead, but it is one of the more famous openings in American letters. It could be the first sentence of this book. Didion's dream was etched in dread, outlined in black shadows, a chiaroscuro study. The center was not holding. The Queen of California Noir warned about the changing times in her 1967 article on Haight-Ashbury, Slouching Towards Bethlehem. 
She was paraphrasing the Irish poet William Butler Yeats, writing about World War I. The conflict in Vietnam loomed over Didion's landscape. In the third act of her life, her center did indeed let go. Her husband of four decades, the writer John Gregory Dunn, and their 39-year-old daughter, Quintana Rue Dunn, died during a torturous 20-month stretch, leaving Joan alone in New York City, a single woman, age 70. No longer the dreamer in the golden land, but a stranger in a strange land. The idea of the golden dream infuses all her work, says Steffi Nelson. She was so compelled by Didion's influence on the literary scene she found when she moved from New York out west that she edited an anthology about it, Slouching Towards Los Angeles, Living and Writing by Joan Didion's Light. She sees this potential. She also calls it the shimmer, but the golden dream in particular applies to California. She was enraptured by this idea of the potential of California, whether that was being a pioneer crossing the prairie to get to the West, or an aspiring starlet trying to become a Hollywood star. Didion knew quite a bit about pioneers and starlets. She was born in California, as were four generations of her family before her. These deep roots were intrinsic to her identity. As early as eighth grade, she celebrated them in writing. They who came to California were not the self-satisfied, happy, and content people, but the adventurous, the restless, and the daring. They were different even from those who settled in other Western states. They didn't come West for homes and security, but for adventure and money, she wrote, voicing early skepticism of imperial ambitions. The words come from a speech for her graduation from Arden School, which was then, in 1948, on the agrarian eastern edge of Sacramento, but is now a public education institution firmly planted in a grid that includes Taco Bell, Kaiser Permanente, and Big Five Sporting Goods. There is a common misperception that Didion was an Angelino, she did live in various parts of Los Angeles for 24 years, and she did document that city with a keen simpatico like no other writer had done before. But the story begins with the country. She was born and raised in Sacramento, the capital city that sits atop California's agrarian Central Valley in the middle of the state. It was here, in a land made verdant and volatile by the convergence of two rivers, between the snow-capped range of the Sierra Nevada, where many would-be settlers met their death in the journey to the west, and the coastal range that became the home of vineyards and universities, that Didion's ancestors settled. The Matthew Kilgore Cemetery lies on the eastern outskirts of Sacramento, on what was once the Kilgore Ranch, but is now a typical suburban sprawl called Rancho Cordova. On a steamy June morning in 2022, I'm sitting beneath an oak tree with Jean Didion Huggins and Joan Didion, two of the seven children of Robert Bob Eldridge Didion, the brother of Joan's father, Frank Sonny Reese Didion. The canopy provides some protection from the notorious Central Valley heat, which tops 100 degrees by midday. The cousins of Joni, as they still call her, are telling me the history of their Kilgore ancestors, whose graves lie 50 feet from where we sit. 
The tiniest little acorns occasionally fall onto the picnic table as they show me the bound book that includes the diary of one ancestor's passage through the Sierra Nevada to the Golden Land. A lot of people who came to California wrote diaries because it was such an undertaking, Huggins says. They knew they were participating in a historical adventure. I don't know if anybody in my generation could ever have done anything like this. In the slanting handwriting of the 19th century diary, I see the forebear of Joan's notebooks, one of which I had perused two days earlier in the Joan Didion collection at the University of California, Berkeley. Sacramento is the oldest incorporated city in California, dating back to 1850, the same year California became a state. Before a Swiss conman named John Augustus Sutter convinced the Mexican government in 1839 to give him 48,000 acres of land at the junction of the Sacramento and American rivers, the area was populated by the Maidu, Patwin Wintun, and Miwok, people who understood the improvisation necessary to live in an area of ecological whimsy and who based their diet on the smallest provenance, acorns. The indigenous tribes did not try to cultivate or control the land because they obeyed the laws of the water and knew that nature had its own method of providing nutrition, tender protein encased in a hard shell wearing a jaunty little cap. Settlers had other ideas. Sutter built a typical square European fort here in 1840. There was no war taking place, except, of course, for the invasion of native land. Sutter's Fort is now a state park in the heart of Sacramento. Schoolchildren visit regularly, baking cookies in the old stone ovens, walking the grounds where indigenous people were once enslaved. Didion must have come here on those field trips. Her connection to the city's settlement, a source of childhood pride, as made evident by her ardent, ardent speech. Sutter was a wily capitalist who hitched his wagon to whomever was in charge, first the Mexican government, then the United States of America. Sutter's fort was perfectly positioned west of the mountain passes through which more and more wagon trains were coming. The fort was a gateway, providing shelter and sustenance to the growing number of colonizers, including some of Didion's ancestors. Then the trickle became traffic. In 1848, James Marshall, a carpenter building a mill for Sutter on the southern fork of the American River, saw a glint in the water. He scratched the yellow rock. It was soft. After that, the Maidu, Patwin Wintun, and Miwok didn't stand a chance.